Good morning. Whether you're joining us over the live stream or here in person, welcome to First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. I am Chris Jimerson, co-lead minister for Values and Mission. My pronouns are he, him. We are a spiritual community dedicated to a free and responsible search for truth, meaning, and beauty. I am so delighted to be with all of you today. I especially want to welcome our visitors. If you're with us online, please say hello in the comments and let us know from where you're watching the service. And whether you're online or here in person, please go to austinuu.org, follow the worship link, and then the link to our online visitors forum. We'd love to know more about you. We come from a long tradition of seeing a spark of the divine in every person, and it's in that tradition that I invite you to greet the holy among us, either in the comments if you're online, or by turning to those around you if you're here in the sanctuary. Please join me in saying the words we use for the lighting of the chalice. This is the flame we hold in our hearts as we strive for justice for everyone. This is the light we shine upon of oppression until they are no more. This is the warmth that we share as our struggle becomes our salvation. Today's call to worship is a proverb from the Lakota people who were the indigenous people on this continent who lived in what we now call the Midwest and um, the Upper Plains area little remains of their culture, but some of it has been passed down through their survivors. Treat the earth well. It was not given to you by your parents. It was loaned to you by your children. We do not inherit the earth from our ancestors. We borrow it from our children. This congregation has a mission it arose out of our religious values, transcendence, community, compassion, courage, and transformation. It's our common purpose. It, dis- it guides our decision-making and all of our programs and ministries. We put it on our wall and we say it together every Sunday. Let's do so now. Together, we nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice to build the beloved community. As we enter into our time of centering this morning, I invite us to find that centering in interconnectedness with our world. I offer a prayer for our world from Pope Francis' encyclical Laudato Si. Please feel free to envision your own concept of that which is greater than us, if you wish. Now please join me in a spirit of prayer or meditation. All-powerful God, you are present in the whole universe and in the smallest of your creatures. Embrace with tenderness all that exists. Pour out upon us the power of love that we may protect life and beauty. Fill us with peace 
that we may live as siblings, harming no one. O God of the poor, help us to rescue the abandoned and forgotten of this earth, so precious to you. Bring healing to our lives, that we may protect the world and not prey on it, that we may sow beauty, not pollution and destruction. Touch the hearts of those who look only for gain at the expense of the poor and the earth. Teach us to discover the worth of each thing, to be filled with awe and contemplation, to recognize that we are profoundly united with every creature. Encourage us, we pray, in our struggle for justice, love, and peace. Amen. In a moment, when the music begins, I will invite you to light candles. As we light candles, please keep in your mind and heart members of our community who are ill or in sorrow. Especially, please hold in your heart trans people and their families and loved ones as they encounter the brutal actions being taken by the Texas State Legislature.
is taken from a Hindu proverb. The rivers are the veins of God. The ocean is his blood. And the trees, the hairs of his body. The air is his breath. The earth, his flesh. The sky, his abdomen. The hills and mountains are his bones. And the passing ages are his movements. When I was in my 20s, at least a decade ago, (laughs) what, I said at least. When I was in my 20s, I lived for a while in Denver, Colorado. I loved it there primarily because it was so close to the Rockies. My family had brought me there starting as a young child, and several places within those mountains had become holy to me. One such area has always been a drive that begins right outside of Boulder and follows the winding course of a crystal clear river through jagged, spectacular rock formations soaring to miraculous heights above the roadside. Along the river, aspen trees and a dazzling variety of forest life thrive. Then, around other curves, great pine forests climb up the mountainsides, green and lush. I've been on that trek many times, the last just a little less than a year ago. As an adult, I've always felt compelled to stop pretty often to absorb the sheer beauty and experience the transcendence that such beauty can awaken. It had become a spiritual journey for me. So, my spirit was shattered the last time I went because as I rounded the first curve where one of the great pine forests had been, what was formerly green and lush was barren and brown. All of the pine trees had died. And this is happening all over the Rocky Mountains According to the Colorado Forest Service, there are now close to one billion dead standing trees in Colorado due mostly to the climate crisis. Average temperatures have risen by several degrees, leading to extreme heat during summers and an ongoing drought. These two factors alone have killed many of the trees and severely weakened others, and that has resulted in a beetle that attacks the trees, killing many more of them. At one time, a sort of symbiosis had existed. The beetles would kill off older, weaker trees, clearing space for new growth. However, long periods of extreme cold would kill the beetle off during the winter, keeping it from multiplying to the point that it could overwhelm even healthy trees. Now, though, the trees are already weakened by heat and drought. The winters are shorter and colder. Now the beetle is killing trees in 3.4 million acres of forest. 
And all that dead wood provides ready fuel for wildfires, which not only kill more trees, but spew more carbon into the atmosphere, escalating a vicious cycle. Next Saturday is Earth Day, so we're centering this Sunday and the coming weeks on how we can spring into action regarding the climate crisis. And my beloveds, it is a crisis. As young climate activist Greta Thunberg said it, and I'm sure I didn't get that exactly correctly, can we all now please stop saying climate change and instead call it what it is? Climate breakdown. Climate crisis. Climate emergency. Now, I want to acknowledge that words like crisis and emergency, especially when it's on a global scale, can seem so big and overwhelming that we just want to avoid it. We can feel stuck, like we can't possibly do anything to make a meaningful difference. So, to resist falling into what has been called climate doomerism, know that in a few minutes we'll talk about actions we can actually take. And I began with that personal story. Our readings today came from religious texts because if we can begin to see the climate crisis as a personal and a spiritual issue, we may also be able to develop a fortitude that will sustain such action. And it is a personal and a spiritual issue. In fact, all of the world's religions emphasize responsible environmental stewardship. The Quran reminds us not to shirk this responsibility when it says, Corruption has appeared on land and sea because of what people's own hands have wrought. So, may they taste something of what they have done so that hopefully they will turn back. An existential corruption has appeared on our land and sea. Just in the last few weeks, the United Nations issued a report stating that the chance to secure a livable future for everyone on Earth is slipping away. The climate time bomb is ticking, said Antonio Guterres, Secretary General of the UN, adding, humanity is on thin ice, and that ice is melting fast. Literally. As polar ice sheets, as well as other freshwater sources melt, sea levels are rising. So much so, that repeated floodings in cities like Miami, Florida, has led to climate gentrification, wherein people with resources are buying up all of the land at higher elevations, making it impossible for people with less resources to move to those areas. Here is a projection of what happens to the Gulf Coast depending on how much ice melts and, as a consequence, sea levels rise. 
The video goes on to show the state of Florida completely disappearing underwater if all the ice sheets melt. And just as these rising sea levels are threatening entire habitats, the climate crisis more generally is destroying many, many others. Hundreds upon hundreds of animal species are threatened with extinction, including those pictured in this slide. And I suppose human beings should be up there too. While scientists encounter more difficulty determining determining the threats as precisely, we know that a great many plant species are threatened also, including many of the crops upon which we depend. These include potatoes, avocados, vanilla, cotton, beans, squash, chili peppers, tomatoes, bananas, apples, and ginger, just to list a few. Here in Austin, we have shifted from a zone 8 to a zone 9 habitat. What that means is if we look out at our church grounds, which plants are native and adaptive has changed since some of our existing foliage was planted. Worse yet, it's getting harder and harder to even classify habitats. Extreme weather events are defying what had been normative climate ranges. Think our recent snow-then-ice apocalypse is separated by sustained days of triple-digit heat during the summers. Tick, tick, tick goes the climate crisis time bomb. Okay. Enough of my crisis caterwauling, though. Lest we fall into that climate doomerism, let's talk about how we can take action. And for this, we return to the personal and the spiritual. The Buddhist Medha Sutra says, Even as a mother protects with her life her child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upward to the skies and downward to the depths. That's so beautiful because it centers our personal commitment to our planet in a love for all that is. And we can put that love into action in our individual lives. We've provided this flyer that outlines some of the personal ways we all can reduce our climate emissions through our transportation and travel, home efficiency, dietary habits, and more. And our Green Sanctuary team and representatives from guest environmental groups are available to provide more information after the service and in the weeks to come. Now, some climate activists argue against focusing on this type of individualized approach to the climate crisis. They argue that it distracts us from the movement building we must do to demand change from the real culprits behind climate warming emissions, large corporations and the governments that do their bidding. Climate activist Derek Jensen even made a film about it called Forget Shorter Showers. 
And these worries have some legitimacy. For a couple of decades now, British Petroleum has run an ad campaign designed to shift the public's focus away from the much larger role oil corporations play in the climate crisis by pushing individual responsibility instead. Yet all of our individual efforts combined, no matter how strong and how widespread, will never be enough to offset the climate damage being done by these giant corporate polluters. I don't believe we can forget shorter showers, though. The film itself states that individual efforts could reduce our carbon emissions by up to 22%. These efforts are necessary. They're just not sufficient. So we need both. We need to reduce our own individual climate emissions while also, also coming together to demand major changes in climate-related government oversight and corporate practices. And we have to try to convince others to join our advocacy efforts. We must know that these advocacy efforts, too, are spiritual practices. A Baha'i sacred text states, We cannot segregate the human heart from the environment outside us and say that once one of these is reformed, everything will be improved. We are organic to the world. Our inner life molds the environment and is itself also deeply affected by it. The one acts upon the other and every abiding change in life is the result of these mutual reactions. And my beloveds, we can mold that environment. So much is already being done. There is so much for which we can advocate. Scientists are developing technologies that can both help vastly reduce our emissions and remove carbon dioxide from the air. In her TED Talk, researcher Jennifer Wilcox describes advances she and others are making to create carbon capture technology that is both economically and scientifically feasible. Scientists with an organization called Project Drawdown are proposing achievable ways that we can not only halt the increase of greenhouse gases in our atmosphere, but actually reverse it. You can find out more about their work at drawdown.org. I want to show you just one of their graphics. They've done some updates since then, but this shows just some of the ways that we can still begin to drastically reverse the climate crisis. I want to address just a couple of these very quickly. Refrigerants. Not so long ago, because of environmental advocacy, the world came together successfully to address the use of refrigerants that were destroying the ozone layer. Regrettably, some of the chemicals that manufacturers then began using have been discovered to greatly increase atmospheric warming. So a new effort has been underway to promote the use of even newer cooling methods that do not contribute to the climate crisis. 
The good news is we already have a model for such advocacy. We've done it before regarding the ozone layer. Education and equality. These scientist studies have shown that for a multitude of reasons, if we begin to address educational, economic, social, and racial inequalities throughout the world, particularly as regards girls, women, and family planning, an additional benefit will be remarkably large reductions in atmospheric warming. And this work is already consistent with our Unitarian Universalist values. In his book, Blessed Unrest, activist Paul Hawkins proposes that a global movement to demand environmental and social justice is already underway. What you're seeing here is the beginning of a list of the 130,000 minimum organizations in the world who work towards social and environmental justice. And that's a minimum. It may be 250,000 groups. It may be 500,000 groups. Read these names. They're unfamiliar to you, most of them, I'm sure, right? They are. We do not know how big this movement is. It's marked by kinship and community and symbiosis. It is Pachamama. It's mama, right? It's the earth talking back, waking up, you know? What you see is your kin on that screen, you know? And to give you a sense of how big this movement is, if I had started this tape on Friday morning at 9 a.m. when this conference began, and if we sat here all day Friday, all night Friday, all day Saturday, all night Saturday, all day Sunday, all night tonight and all day Monday, we still would not have seen the names of all the groups in the world who we are. And to build on that momentum, we have to talk about the climate crisis. We have to convince others to join this movement. Now, how many of you have tried to engage with someone in denial about the climate crisis? How'd that go for you? How well did throwing facts and figures at them work? Not at all. Environmental scientist Catherine Hayhoe says that we must talk about the climate crisis, but that we may have greater success if we emphasize values and common ground over rehashing facts. Here she is describing doing so at a Rotary Club meeting in the second most conservative U.S. city, Lubbock, Texas. I'm not a Rotarian, but when I gave my first talk at a Rotary Club, I walked in and they had this giant banner that had the four-way test on it. Is it the truth? Absolutely. Is it fair? Heck no. That's why I care most about climate change, because it is absolutely unfair. Those who have contributed the least to the problem are bearing the brunt of the impacts. It went on to ask, would it be beneficial to all? Would it build goodwill? Well, to fix it certainly would. So I took my talk and I reorganized it into the four-way test, and then I gave it to this group of conservative business people in West Texas. And I will never forget, at the end, a local bank owner came up to me with the most bemused look on his face. 
And he said, you know, I wasn't sure about this whole global warming thing, but it passed the four-way test. (laughs) So, whether it is rooted in a common love for the outdoors or her own Christian faith, Dr. Hayo's research has led her to believe a values-based approach is most likely to motivate change. As I've been reading her book, Saving Us, A Climate Scientist's Case for Hope and Healing, I keep finding myself thinking about my grandpa, Leo. There he is, young Leo, and Leo, as I more often remember him, I just didn't want you to get him confused with our Leo here at the church. (laughs) After my parents' divorce, my grandfather became a role model for me. He instilled in me a love for nature, and those mountains in Colorado. I remember him taking us camping in the piney woods of East Texas. One of my favorite memories is walking with him during a rainfall under the pine tree canopy, shielded from the rain, saturated with the intoxicating smell of dampened pine needles. Now, the thing is, Grandpa Leo and I probably had very different ideological leanings. He was, after all, a deacon in a small-town Texas Baptist church. And yet, were he alive today, I believe we would find common ground in our shared values, a love for nature, and a faith-centered call to responsible environmental stewardship. If I told him about the dying pines in Colorado, the glaciers disappearing in Glacier National Park, his beloved Gulf coastline slowly fading away under the rising waters, I have no doubt that Grandpa Leo would soon be a leader in this movement. After all, it is the values he instilled in me that lead me to think of it as a spiritual journey, a sacred undertaking. My beloveds, our time is running short, but we do still have time. Our spiritual journey begins now. We undertake the sacred quest of resurrecting the very future of life and creation together. And the Grandpa Leo in me is saying, Come on, y'all. Let's get going. Please join with me now in saying the words we use to extinguish the chalice. We extinguish this flame but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. For our benediction today, I offer you the poetry of Rebecca Baggett. This is called Testimony for My Daughters. I want to tell you that the world is still beautiful. 
I tell you that despite the slow poison seeping from old and hidden sins into our air, soil, water. Despite the thinning film that encloses our aching world. Despite my own terror and despair. I want you to look again and again to recognize the tender grasses curled like a baby's fine hairs around your fingers as a recurring miracle. To see that the river rocks shine like God. That the crisp voices of the orange and gold October leaves are laughing at death. I want you to look beneath the grass to note the fragile hieroglyphs of ant, snail, beetle. I want you to understand that you are no more and no less necessary than the brown recluse, the ruby-throated hummingbird, the humpback whale, the profligate mimosa. I want to say like Neruda that I am waiting for a great and common tenderness. That I believe we are still capable of attention. That anyone who notices the world must want to save it. I wish you much love. Let's go forth and save it. Amen. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.